If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. We'll read that together. I would encourage you to get that in front of you. There are Bibles in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one or you can pull out your phone, feel free to do that. We're going to be all in this text, so let's read it together. It'll be on the screen as well. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. The story that I'm about to tell you feels really inappropriate on the heels of what we just heard, and yet it's in my notes, and here we are. Uh, I forgot a lot of things about uh, having a newborn in the house. We have a three-month-old in our house, but I think the main thing that I forgot Uh, I remembered the lack of sleep. I remembered the crying. I forgot how many diapers are involved, like the sheer volume of diapers that are involved. And I forgot the, the size of the person to the smell ratio doesn't match up. I have no idea how, like, yeah, we don't need to go too far down that path. But we have this great thing called a, a diaper genie. It's like a diaper pail. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these before, but basically it's made out of bomb shelter material uh, and it's closed in on all sides. It kind of has a flap on the top and you can put the diaper in and the smell is gone. It's unbelievable. Uh, but the problem is it's pretty small, pretty, pretty small deal. And so uh, you get enough diapers in there, which is 30, 40 a day, and you pretty much got to empty it all the time. But you get to play this fun game with your spouse called who can push it down the hardest and pretend that it's not actually full until you can't push it down any further. Too many of you are nodding. You know exactly what game I'm talking about. Uh, But apparently there is a limit to the bomb shelter. We pushed the diapers down so far and the pressure had gotten so great that one morning I walked into her room. And the smell ratio referred to earlier, it was, have you ever been hit by a wall of smell? It was like that. The door of the bomb shelter had given out and there were diapers everywhere. Now, some people in our house tie together diapers better than others. And so some of the diapers, I'm the bad one, I guess you gotta be honest. Some of the diapers had come open. There were wipes everywhere, smell everywhere, mess everywhere. And so I did what any good husband would do. I pretended like I never saw it. <laughs> I didn't do that. I cleaned it up, got on my hands and knees, got in the mess. There's no good way to do that, right? Like it's just, it is what it is. But I was thinking about that story and I was thinking about this series and maybe you feel a little bit like that. Like we've just spent four weeks and if you've really engaged in this process of looking at your sin, the door to your heart has been opened and it's pretty nasty what's involved in there. 
Like if you'll actually ask God to show you what's going on deep inside your heart, it's an absolute mess. And part, a big part of the Christian life is getting in the mess and it's not easy and there's no good way to do it, but we have to deal with that sin. But that's not all of the Christian life. We aren't made to exist in the mess. There's also a call to something greater. There's also a call, a challenge to the kind of person that you could become. It's what the Bible calls holiness. Now, many of us hear that word, maybe especially if you have a church background, and it kind of makes us cringe, right? That holiness, even the word comes with all this baggage with it. If I was to text you this afternoon and say, you know what, you are so holy, your first reaction might be to think that I was mocking you or criticizing you in some way. Because when we think about holiness, we start to think about phrases like holier than thou, right? Uh, At best, maybe you think about holiness like a person who is very, they keep all the rules, they do all the right things, they're a little bit separate from society, but you really wouldn't want to spend Friday night with them. Like it's not the kind of person you would want to be around. At worst, you might think of a holy person as superior and judgmental. That they look down on the rest of us and the mess of our lives and judge us, and they exist up here in that stratosphere. Obviously, the Bible has something totally different in mind when it calls us to holiness. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, how little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it's irresistible. And this is the kind of person that God wants to change you into. That song we just sang, praise to the Lord, uh, God Almighty, I can't remember the exact title. There's one phrase that caught me a few months ago. It says, ponder anew what the Almighty might do if with his love he befriends thee. That's holiness. Ponder anew what God might want to change you into because he's befriended you and he's called you to be holy. I don't know if you've ever uh, met the kind of person or interacted with the kind of person that C.S. Lewis is describing here, this irresistible kind of person. I'm a Christian today because I met a person like this. I had a youth pastor that came into my life. And even when I was in sixth grade, I knew this guy's not very cool. He's not very funny. He's not very attractive, but I want to be just like him. There's just something about him, something attractive, something irresistible. And I didn't know then what I know now is he's probably the holiest person that I've ever met. And this is what God wants to change us into. Holy people are the kind of people you want to be around. They're fun and real and approachable. Richard Foster argues that holy people are truly human. The kind of people that God intended for us to be before we were marked by sin. When we were made perfectly in God's image. And so what I want to do is this. If you look back at your text, I want to look at this passage kind of like a sandwich. We're going to start in the middle with the meat, verses 14 to 16. We're going to ask this question. What does it mean to be holy? And then the bread, the outsides of the sandwich, are two motivations for holiness, hope and fear. Okay? So that's what we'll do together, and then we'll be done. So first of all, what does it mean to be holy? Look back at verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Kevin DeYoung says, you can't make sense of the Bible 
without understanding that God is holy and that this holy God is intent on making a holy people. Can't make sense of the Bible if you don't understand that God is holy and that he's intent on making a holy people. So we have to look at both of those things. According to this passage, what does it mean that God is holy and that he wants to make you holy? First of all, what does it mean that God is holy? One of the most mentioned and most important attributes of God in all of scripture is his holiness. It's the only scripture that, or the only attribute that's listed in a set. You know those passages where it says, holy, holy, holy. Over and over again, we're told that God is holy. And when we think about God's holiness, I think the first thing that we think about, the first kind of characteristic that we attach it that to is moral purity. That God is pure and he's moral and he's separate from sin. And that's definitely true. But the Bible actually has a lot more in mind when it calls God holy. It's speaking of his uniqueness. God's holiness is his otherness. Uh, I was watching football yesterday and one of the announcers said, this player right here has a very unique skill set. And I never know what my pet peeves are when people ask you, but that's one of my pet peeves. There's no such thing as very unique. There's unique and common, right? This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about his God is unique. He is totally other, totally separate. It's not as if there's a scale And we exist somewhere on the scale and angels exist somewhere on the scale and God is top of the scale is as if the rest of us are on one scale and God is on a totally different playing field. He is altogether in a different stratosphere. He is wholly unique, wholly other. We see this all throughout the Old Testament when the Israelites get off with God. He'll he'll say something to them to the effect of this. Oh, I see what happened. You thought that I was like you. So in Psalm 50, the people fall into sin and he says, you thought that I was one like yourselves, a slightly better version of you. And so they start to treat God casually and he won't do it. God is not like us. We're not peers with him. He exists on a totally different scale. Let me me show you just a couple of ways why that matters. When we're talking about holy as totally other, totally on a, on a different scale, imagine in your life, go mentally to a time where you were walking through something really difficult. It's really hard. You can't possibly see what God would be doing. You couldn't possibly see what his purpose would be in it. And if we, we, what we can start to do in those moments is we can start to question either God's uh, job credentials. Is he, is he doing a good job? Or we can start to question his character. Is he actually loving and good? And very quickly in our minds, we can go to this and, and go, okay, I know how I would do, do this situation. And God is doing a poor job. He's not handling it well. That's how we start to think when we think we're on a scale with God and he's just at the top, like God's a valedictorian and we're the B student. But here, listen to Isaiah 55, eight and nine. It says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Here's what I want you to see. When you're in moments of deep pain and you can't possibly see what God is doing, don't go, well, I know what I would do and God's not doing it. 
This, instead, think this. God is totally off the scale. His, high, his thoughts are so much higher than I thought. my thoughts, I couldn't even possibly comprehend them. His ways are so much higher than my ways, I couldn't possibly understand them. His love and his graciousness and his goodness and his kindness is so much higher than mine. And so even though I don't understand, here's what I believe. God is doing a thousand things in my life, and I might be able to see one or two of them because he's operating on a totally different plane of wisdom and perspective. He's got thoughts and ways that are totally above our thoughts. You see how that starts to transform when we think about God's holiness? He's totally off the scale. Let me give you another example. In John 17, when Jesus is praying for us to to God, he calls him Holy Father. Now you could read that one way and go, morally pure Father. Or, If holiness is otherness, uniqueness, perfection, here's what Jesus is saying. You have a father, even if you had the best earthly father possible, who blows him out of the water. You have a father who takes perfect care of you. You have a father who is perfectly tender and compassionate. He disciplines you perfectly. He's faithful to you perfectly. And so until we get this idea of what it means that God is holy, off the scale, totally other, we won't understand these attributes of God, the kind of father that Jesus is saying that we have, a perfect one, an other one, an off the charts one. And so God is holy, which means he's totally unique, totally separate, totally other. And then the passage says this, this is the consistent command of scripture, As God is holy, you be holy. (laughs) Let's close in prayer. (laughs) Like what? Totally unique, off the scale, separate. His ways higher than your ways. His thoughts higher than your thoughts. Be holy as he is holy. What in the world does that mean? We're not God. We can't be God. We can't exist on that kind of playing field. So what does it mean that God calls us to be holy? Here's what we see. If you're going to read through the Bible next year, as we're hoping to all do together, you're going to get to Leviticus, which is going to be the first time you're going to think about giving up. But here's what you're going to see in Leviticus and in a lot of chapters thereafter. There are a lot of really interesting things that God calls holy. He calls shovels holy. He calls pots holy. He calls linen holy. And it's like, wait a second, I have a bunch of shovels. Some are used for like, picking up after my dog, and some are used for digging holes. Is the whole one, the holy one? What is going on here? Here's what we start to figure out. The holy shovels, holy pots, holy linens, those are the ones that were dedicated and used in the temple alone. They were set apart from all the other shovels and all the other pots for God's use alone. Here's what it means for you to be holy. You have been totally set apart. You have been totally picked out and placed in a different, for a different use. You are holy gods. That's where that word comes from, W-H-O-L-L-Y. All of you belongs to God. Your mind and your heart and your will and your priorities and your money and your sexuality, it all now belongs to God. It's been totally set apart for God, for his use, for his purposes, for his good. So that's what it means when the Bible calls us to be 
holy. We exist to be used by God and for his purposes, which teaches us at least three things about holiness. It teaches us, first of all, that holiness is not simply a list of rules. It's a set of motivations. Holiness is not simply a list of rules. It's a set of motivations. So I was talking earlier about the baggage that comes with the word holiness. And one of those things is we think, okay, a holy person, uh, they do uh, not go see like Harry Potter at the movie theater. They do go see like the, um, oh, what's that guy's name? Kirk, whatever, the, Kirk Cameron, like the Christian movie. So like you do, you do not do this, you do this. Here's a list of things to avoid and here's a list of things to do. And if you can just check off the checklist, you'll be a holy person. That you'll be the kind of person that the Bible is calling you to be, a, a list of rules. But what Scripture is teaching us here is that if holiness is set apartness, we can't just reduce it to a list of rules. Of course, there's things God calls us to do and not do. But we all know, right? There's a million reasons to do the right thing, to do a list of good things and not do certain things. You could be thinking about your reputation. You could be thinking about your business. You could be thinking about not bringing dishonor to the family name. You could be thinking about all sorts of things. In other words, you can keep the right list of rules and not do a certain list of things and still not be holy. Because God's calling us to something totally different. The problem with turning holiness into a checklist is that holiness by checklist inevitably turns into this kind of mindset. We start to think, what do I have to do to keep God happy? What's like the bare minimum, right? And so we start to ask questions like this. Don't be offended. It's just questions we ask. When I tithe, do I have to tithe like after tax or before tax? Because before tax would be a lot more. Like show me the bar. What's like the bare minimum I have to do to just keep God off my back so that he's not mad at me? Or if you're dating someone, uh, same youth pastor, I remember going to him and I'm in high school and I'm dating someone and you, you ask this question, hey, this is really hard to stay sexually pure. So what do you ask? How far is too far, right? Where's the line? What's the most I can do to just make God not mad at me? What do I have to do? Here's what holiness asks. I've been set apart for God, by God. What do I get to do? <laughs> His heart and pleasing him and delighting him and honoring him and being used by him, that's my heart. And so what in the world do I get to do? How can I please him and honor him and bring him joy and bring him delight? I wanna be, I, I wanna be used by him. I wanna be a holy person. And so it starts to get into your motivations. It's not just about the things you do or don't do. We, start, we stop asking questions like that. And I just wanna say this, it, it changes the whole theme of this whole series. We have to get out of a mindset that simply asks, what can't I do? And begin to ask, who could I become? What could I be transformed into? What could it look like if my whole life was set apart? My whole life, I said, God, this is yours, use it. That's what it means to live a holy life. Secondly, holiness is not separation, it's incarnation. Look back at the end of verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This word exile is an important word in Peter. It's one of the themes of the whole book. 
And what it's talking about is our relationship with the world that we live in as Christians. What does it look like to live as strangers in a foreign country? And he applies it here to holiness. And one commentator I was reading this week said this, there are basically three ways to live in the world as a foreigner in a a different country. It's what we're doing as Christians. You can live uh, as an immigrant, as a tourist, or as an exile. So you can live as an immigrant. You can be in a country as a foreign person and say, I want to be a citizen here. I want to be like these people. I want to adopt their values. I want to live like they live. I want to speak their language. I want to just take in all that they are and make that all of who I am. Immigrate totally into a new country. Or you can be a tourist. You can go to a country and say, hey, I'm just kind of keeping my distance. I'm just looking from afar. Like, I just want to see what's happening out here. I just want to visit. I'm not here to stay. I'm not here to help. I just want to watch. Or you could be an exile. Here's what an exile is. An exile is a person who's living in a foreign country permanently, but their citizenship still lies in another country. Their values and priorities and identity lie somewhere else, but they can still live here and love these people and serve this country. And so apply that to holiness. There's a way to think about holiness, which is just this, totally separate from the world, totally pull out, just be a tourist that looks at the world and goes, hey, I'm just gonna kind of stay on the outside of this. But the Bible calls us to be exiles, that to know undoubtedly our citizenship lies in heaven, our values and identity and priorities lie there, but we still live here incarnationally. We still love people here. We still care for people here. We still seek the welfare of this city. And so holiness is separation, or not separation, it's incarnation. And then lastly, holiness is not perfection, it's progress. I think one of the biggest barriers to our growth in holiness is that we expect perfection from ourselves. A lot of you are black and white, type A, thinker type people, and you go, okay, I've been called to holiness. But the first thing you think about is, I fall short in so many areas. But the Bible, when it talks about holiness, we're never promised perfection, but we are guaranteed progress. Holiness is not about where you are, it's about where you're going. So we have to start to think this way. I'll give you an example. I've told you before that my my natural compassion level is like at the floor, basically. And so here's what I can't do. I can't just go, my compassion is terrible. I'll never grow in compassion. I also can't do this. I can't go, my wife is like incredibly compassionate. She cries in every conversation she has with a friend when they're telling about their life. Like what in the world, right? So if I started to compare myself to her, her compassion level started at a higher level than my compassion level started at, right? I can't have this standard of perfection, which is not her, She's good. Uh, Instead, it's about progress. What's God doing? Where am I moving? In this last year, have I become more compassionate? We have to focus on our progress, not our perfection. And then we'll do this very quickly. Look at two motivations for holiness. How do we grow in holiness? How do we cultivate this kind of heart? First of all, our first motivation is hope. Look back at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. This phrase, preparing your minds for action, in the original language is this phrase, gird up your loins, which you say every day, probably. But the idea is this, you know, in the first century, they wore these long flowing robes, right? And so if they wanted to do something, if they wanted to get on the Peloton, right? If they wanted to run, if they wanted to do anything that required effort, they would have to pull their robe up and tuck it into their belt, and then they were ready. The equivalent today would be roll up your sleeves, right? Get ready to work hard. Here's what we learn. Holiness requires effort. It's not a spectator sport. That it's something we have to work towards in our life. Listen to this great quote from D.A. Carson. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Holiness requires grace-driven effort. And so it says, gird up, the lo- gird up your loins. But where does this happen? Look back at that verse. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. That holiness begins in the mind with action. And he says at the end of verse 13, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, and then here's how we take action in our minds. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the fuel, the motivation for holiness. We have to learn to set our hope fully on future grace. That one day, Jesus is coming back for you And he's not coming back to chastise you. He's not coming back to tell you how much you've embarrassed him. He's not coming back to discipline you. He's coming back to take you to live with him. He's coming back to take you to a perfect heaven, to live with him face to face, where we'll be free from sin. And here's what scripture's telling us. If we wanna be holy people, we have to set our hope fully on that reality that we have to think ourselves into action of going, one day, all of my hope lies there. And if all of my hope lies there, that changes everything about how I live now. Let me just give you a couple of examples how we cannot do this. If what you hope for in life most is a comfortable retirement, if that's what you've set your hope fully on, think about how that changes your actions and thinking and priorities. It changes everything about how you work changes everything about how you spend your time. It changes everything about how you spend your money. It changes everything that you dream about and think about. If your hope is set on having a perfect family and obedient kids, think about how that changes your life. The level of anxiety you now feel, all of you are laughing because you're like, perfect kids, I gave that up a long time ago. The level of anxiety you feel when they do something disobedient. The level of stress you feel about their lives because they're your hope. You have to hold on tightly to them so they'll be successful and bring you the happiness that you so desire. 
you'll get angry when they don't live up to your expectations. If your hope is just for next weekend, like I just want to get to next weekend and watch whatever on Netflix, I just want to veg out and tune out life and just relax. If you put all of your hope there, then you'll get to that place. And if anybody threatens that time that you've set aside for yourself, the emotion that you're gonna immediately feel is anger. You're just gonna lash out. And the whole week leading up to that, you're actually gonna do less effort because you're just looking forward to that moment when you can finally do nothing. So you do nothing in preparation for nothing. I, I do this, I understand. It changes everything. But if your hope is a person... Jesus, in a place, heaven. It changes everything about how you live. Because now, your hope for contentment and joy and your desires being met isn't found here. It's found in a place and in a person that cannot be threatened. So your anxiety lowers, your stress lowers, because your hope is set fully there on the grace that is to come to you. And then lastly, very quickly, second motivation is fear. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Fear in this context is not fear of condemnation, fear of hell, fear that God might turn on us. Fear is a healthy fear of your father. Healthy fear. It's an awe of all that God has done for us and a desire to please him. And then Peter tells us what creates this all, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I don't know how many of you have been following this story of the missionaries that were taken captive in Haiti. There were 17 missionaries, 16 of them Christians, five of them kids, one Canadian. And uh, they were taken captive by a gang in Haiti. And they're still, they're still being held captive. But as soon as they got taken captive, the gang members kind of know how this works. They put out this demand for their ransom, $1 million a person. So $17 million and all those people are yours. I was thinking about that story. And I read this verse about us being ransomed. And I just started to think of the reality that we too are spiritual captors. That we have a ransom on our head and it's far greater than any sum of money that we could possibly imagine. The price is very clear. It's the death of the son of God. It's the precious blood of Christ spilled out for us. And, you know, I was reading in the New York Times about those missionaries and what they said was those captors know they're never going to get a million dollars a person. They know it's a negotiation, so they throw out an incredibly high price that they know isn't going to get paid. But Jesus doesn't balk at the incredibly high price to ransom you. That he goes to the father and says, oh, I'll pay that. I'll pay that for them to ransom them, to free them, to save them. And you know what that does? Peter tells us that what that does in your life is when you live in awe and fear of that, you go, how could I possibly do anything to degrade that sacrifice for me? How could I possibly live in any sort of way that wouldn't honor Jesus for the sacrifice, for the payment, for the ransom that he's paid for my life? 
And so, brothers and sisters, with hope in the future and with fear and awe of all that God's done for you, go be holy as God is holy. Let me pray for us. Father, what an incredible calling. Be holy as you are holy. God, we just, we stand in awe of your holiness, your perfection, your otherness, your uniqueness, your set-apartness. God, help us just to maybe even meditate today on all that means for us and how we relate to you. Your perfect wisdom, your perfect love, your perfect care. And God, we pray that we would be holy people, set-apart people. That we would give you all of our priorities, all of our hope, all of our hearts and wills and minds and say, God, we're set apart for you. Use us. Jesus, we thank you that you, pr- you spilled your precious blood to ransom us. What an incredible reality. Help us to live in all of that this week. We pray in your name.